listening to KBOO Portland. Did you know that KBOO podcasts all our news and talk shows? You can find the podcast on KBOO's website, kboo.fm, on Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher. Just search for your favorite show and hit subscribe to get all the latest episodes downloaded to your favorite device. Or search for KBOO on iTunes, Google Play to get all the KBOO podcasts. to KBOO Portland. Our fall membership drive is happening right now. During this drive, we're featuring content that examines democracy. Join us as programmers explore the sounds of democracy. You can help us in our continuous efforts to feature underserved voices by becoming a member of KBOO Community Radio today. We're a non-commercial, independent community radio station supported by our members. Go to kboo.fm slash give or text kboo to 44321. You can also mail a check to KBOO at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. This is Rising Up with Sonali, a weekly news and analysis program focused on economic, racial, gender justice and more. I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar, and you can find us online at risingupwithsonali.com. This week, we'll examine the discrimination facing Haitian refugees, as tens of thousands of asylum seekers from Haiti are being expelled by the Biden administration using a Trump-era rule. My guest, Jean-Vierve Williams-Comrie of Afro-Resistance, will explain more. Then, in light of the outsized media coverage of Gabby Petito, Tayana Viscara, founder of Way of the Sacred Mountain, will highlight how missing and murdered indigenous women often receive far less media coverage compared to white women who are missing and or murdered. Finally, author Maria Armudian will join me to discuss her latest book, Lawyers Without Borders, Advancing International Rights Through Local Laws and Courts. That's coming up in just a moment.
This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The United States in recent weeks has expelled thousands of Haitian refugees seeking asylum and more deportations are planned. Tens of thousands of Haitians had gathered in an encampment under a bridge in Del Rio, Texas, near the U.S. border with Mexico. Images of U.S. border patrol engaging in violent dispersal of the refugees have sparked international outrage. The Biden administration is expelling the Haitians under a Trump-era rule called Title 42 that has used the COVID-19 pandemic as justification to remove asylum seekers without due process. Meanwhile, Daniel Foote, the U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti, resigned in protest of how Haitian migrants were being treated by his own government. My guest is Jean-Vievre Williams-Comrie, Executive Director of Afro-Resistance. Welcome to the program, Jean-Vievre. Thank you. So, first of all, why are so many Haitian refugees seeking asylum or attempting to seek asylum in the United States right now? We're hearing not just about the ten to 20,000 that were uh, recently cleared uh, away out of the, the, under the Texas Bridge very violently, but we're also getting reports now of additional migrants um, entering or at least aiming for the United States. And we know that there has been a lot of political turmoil within Haiti. So if you can lay out for us, why now are we seeing um, a big wave of folks trying to come in? So thank you for that question, Sonali. I think I think it's um, people want to focus on right now, right now. But I think we have to, I just want to go backwards for, for a second, if I can. I think, um, I think the refugee crisis, right? The migration crisis really, the modern one, like the, the, the right now one, it really starts in 1991, 1994, right? Which is where the tensions, right, start really bubbling up when the coup d'etat starts, right? Around Aristide addressing the United Nations, where he really addresses the, the United Nations and he says that this, the Haiti's dark past dictatorship ends um, where he says that so many Haitians have died. And this is where the the United, um, not United Nations, the United States really sets off and the floodgates open in the region. And we see over 38,000 Haitians start fleeing Haiti. And this is where I, I wanna say that the United States really starts actively messing um, in the waters and people are being processed in the water, something that we hadn't seen before, right? It's, um, and that's in high sea. And we also see that President Bush at that time uses a Supreme Court ruling to say that they can be taken back to Haiti if they're intercepted in high sea, something that was also not seen before. So I think it's just really important to see how the United States starts manipulating it from from then to see what we see today, right? And I understand that right now, President Biden is allowing use of a Trump era rule called Title 42, right. which is essentially, um, even according to DHS head Alexander Alejandro Mayorkas, a public health related rule, not an immigration rule. So do, do you see this as a continuation of how Haitian refugees and migrants have been treated quite differently even from other immigrants. And of course, the U.S. has been in general unfriendly to immigrants, but it seems as though Haitians are discriminated against even more. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and as I said, this sets a precedent also for the region. And I and I keep on saying the region because what we're seeing now is not just a Haiti and US peace, right? The the Haitian migrants that we're seeing today have not been just migrating from Haiti into the United States. What we're seeing here is a migration that is coming as far down as from Brazil and from Chile. So when we see over 12,000, 13,000, 14,000 Haitians coming in to Texas, they're not, they're, they have been migrating and not just from 2021, they have been migrating as early as 2010 and beyond, right? 2010 up to 2021 from countries, as I said before, from, from Chile and from Brazil. They have families that are migrating together with children that have been born in these countries from 2017 2016, and they have been migrating on foot. What has been happening also recently is that tens and thousands of these Haitians, right, that are coming from Chile, Venezuela, Brazil, and other South American nations are finding it very hostile to live in these countries now. And believe, right, that in the United States, it's a little bit better. So that's what we're seeing now. So the why now is that because of the United States, hostilities in these countries, because of the pandemic as well, it has been creating a political, economic, um, social and cultural hostile environment. And now the tip of the pressure cooker has been turned, has been taken off. Hmm. What, what we see now is what we are seeing in the media right now. Let's talk about the very disturbing images that emerged from the way in which Border Patrol agents cleared the bridge in Texas where many migrants had been taking refuge. Uh, a lot of folks likened this to the treatment of uh, you know, horseback riding white slave patrollers um, from this nation's history and the way in which uh, people were uh, these Haitian refugees seeking asylum were treated, were pushed. Um, initially, people thought that they were being whipped. It was the long reins of the horses uh, that I understand were essentially used as whips. It was very, very disturbing images that were even critiqued by President Biden. Um, but, um, you know, I'm wondering if you think that this uh, this is mostly lip service from Democrats who have been embarrassed by the visuals, the, the disturbing optics of, of the of the treatment that they're essentially allowing? I I honestly believe that no matter what party is in power, these things will continue. Mm-hmm. Um, and Afro resistance would believe that this is concretely a human rights violation and an issue. Um, these are asylum seekers. These, ha- these people have landed on US territory and they have been denied their due process. The, um, they have been, the President Biden has, you know, basically hidden behind, um, you know, the excuse of using the pandemic um, to basically deport people without giving them their due process. That is, you know, of course that, you know, Joe Biden said that he, that Haiti is a friend of his. He also mentioned that race and racial discrimination is a thing of the past, that he's really going to, um, I can't quote him verbatim, but he mentioned that um, racial equity. He is going to work really hard to heal the wrongs of the past during his inauguration um, speech. Um, something to he alluded to something like that, and this is not the way to do it, right? 
Um, so I really would like to to for people to to really see what is happening and to hold people accountable. The vote in the United States shouldn't be given lightly to anybody, and I feel that it's time to hold elected officials accountable, but not just in by saying it, but actually by doing it and showing it. And we owe Haiti that because Haiti fought for us and we have to show up for Haiti. I also want to, to be clear, right? Um, there is a convention, right? On the rights of migrant um, workers and members of their family and that includes children and that, that includes women. Um, the United States has not signed it, of course. All these, the articles within all these conventions, these international conventions, which are legally binding, all of the articles are being violated. And these human beings that are at the border would be basically protected by all these legally binding um, protections there. And it, it's heartbreaking because, you know, the United States who says that it's the beacon of human rights is also the, one of the biggest violators of human rights. And I, I would like our, our listeners to really think and reflect about that. Why are some human beings more deserving of rights than other human beings? And there are people, there are people that are now standing and being deported back to a, a, a dilapidated country and that, that brings me to my next question, which is what has happened to the vast majority of those, the people that were basically, you know, they, they talk about the the area under the bridge being cleared, which is a sort of a dehumanizing way to approach it. Cleared of, you know, these are human beings, not cattle. And where have they been pushed off to? Um, what could President Biden do without having to rely on Congress? Because we know that that is a, you know, they can't even uh, decide on or agree on funding the government, let alone actually passing comprehensive immigration reform. So outside of legislation, what could President Biden do to address this emergency right now with the stroke of a pen? Legalization. Legalization, um, the United States can do it. It can be done in a very equitable and humane way. And Biden can um, do this without congressional approval? I mean, wouldn't he need to go through Congress? It would have to go through Congress, of course. Um, but right now, asylum can be can be granted um, to people that are that are in need. Um, there is due process that can be that can be granted um, to people that are that are you know the same the same the same way that people that come in from other countries seek an asylum and they have they can be granted their rights and their due process um, as soon as they land in the United States, the same, that, that same due diligence and rights can be granted to people of Haiti that are here. So essentially, it's it's under international law, right, that people have the right to seek asylum. These Haitian refugees are being turned away and not allowed to even apply or even submit their applications for asylum under this Title 42, I understand, that we addressed earlier. And, and, and Biden... Uh, and the Democrats appear to sort of be throwing their hands up in the air when it's under Biden's purview to simply lift Title 42, right? And say, well, it doesn't apply to Haitian, these Haitian uh, refugees. They could simply be allowed to apply for asylum. Correct. 
Correct. He could just. They're using it. They're using it as an excuse. Um, under because we're living under a pandemic, they're using it. Using just it like as Trump did. I mean, how exactly. is there a difference then between Trump there and Biden no on immigration? There is no difference. The difference. There is no difference. Um, this is to us. This is a racial justice issue. To us as, as uh, Afro resistance, I say this is a racial justice issue. Um, this is an economic justice issue against people of Haiti. Um, and you have to, I think people have to reflect that as to the wise, right? Yeah. Um, the United States has has the resources to be able to do it and to be able to support. Um, and it can, and it has the will. There's enough people in the United States that have shown that we want to support our Haitian brothers and sisters, and we have the will to do it. We saw many groups, including the Haitian Bridge Alliance, and many other groups like Afro Resistance, for example, that have shown up that we want our Haitian brothers and sisters to be able to stay. Um, there's enough, we pay enough in taxes to also sustain our Haitian brothers and sisters. Um, there's a lot of structures that, you know, have recently increased their budgets that could be decreased to sustain our Haitian brothers and sisters while their asylum um, process you know, is um, while they're going through their asylum process, I should I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what about temporary protected status, TPS? Um, this has also been a fight um, around Haitian immigrants living here in the United States under TPS over and over again. We've had successive presidents threaten to withdraw the protection, um, which would have res- would result in you know people living here for many years, having to go back to a country that remains unstable. Is TPS, and, and I understand that uh, d- the Department of Homeland Security um, did this year announce a uh, new TPS designation for Haiti for 18 months. Is this a sort of long-term protection that uh, Haitians entering the United States might be able to obtain given the political instability in Haiti? I do not know if, I do not know if the people that are coming in would qualify for the, for a TPS. Um, I, I'm not a TPS expert. Sure. I yeah. say. So it could be possibly um, a long-term protection. Correct. Now I do know again, that the TPS um, plight and and fight is one that is very, it seems to be very biased against the people of Haiti, that every 18 months it's the same plight over and over while other countries don't have to go through the same application process. Sometimes it's almost, it seems that it's almost automatic. Um, So you also have to wonder exactly why is this, that some countries like Haiti, the, the advocacy has to be so intense and heightened for it to be extended. And some countries, it's just like it's a rollover and a continuation. Um, but for Haiti, that has actual like hurricanes devastations um, that are almost yearly. It's a continued plight. Um, and sometimes it's up to the wire that it's not extended. As I said, I'm not a TPS expert. Um, so I do not know the, the actual qualifications for, for people to apply for, for TPS. 
Are there immigrant rights groups that are specifically supporting Haitian refugees uh, and, and in general black migrants and refugees? Because as you mentioned, unfortunately, a lot of immigrant rights groups have had a blind spot on black immigration. Um, Haitian Bridge Alliance is um, one of the ones that is has been active on the ground. So I would suggest get active with Haitian Bridge Alliance resource wise, please make sure to donate to them. Afro Resistance has also been sharing a lot of information. We have people on the ground in, for example, Colombia that has been gathering information and reporting to us. Um, for example, in Colombia, they're currently criminalizing anyone that provides housing, food, and any form of aid to Haitians. You know, that sounds- And this is one of the countries that Haitian migrants are going through as they might be heading to the US. Correct. So that sounds like a lot of what was happening here in the United States a few years ago yeah. that we were fighting against, right? Where anybody that was helping um, immigrants was also being the threat of us being criminalized, right? So that's happening right now in Colombia. Um, you have Black Alliance for Peace as well that has been covering a lot of this information. But and all these organizations coincidentally are black led. Right. Um, and all these organizations, coincidentally, right, are also under resourced and uh, overworked. So get activated with us. <laughs> well, Jean-Vierre, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. Give out a website for Afro Resistance. Absolutely. www.afroresistance.org. A-F-R-O Resistance. Thank you so much. We'll link to that from our website. Good luck to you. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with John Biev, Williams Comrie, Executive Director of Afro Resistance. And we've been discussing the situation of Haitian refugees seeking asylum in the U.S. and how the Biden administration is giving them the Trump treatment. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The outsized media coverage of Gabby Petito's death in Wyoming has highlighted the public fixation on missing and murdered white women. Indigenous activists for years have been drawing attention to the disproportionate violence facing Indigenous women. In Wyoming alone, where Petito's remains were found, hundreds of indigenous women have gone missing and were found to be murdered over the past decade. 
My guest is Teyana Viscara. She's a descendant of Piro Tiwa Pueblo, Apache and European ancestry, and practices the ceremonial way of life as a prayer runner. She is the founder of Way of the Sacred Mountain, whose vision and work is engaged in the long-standing MMIW crisis through ongoing prayerful action. Welcome to the program, Teyana. Hello. So first, let's start with the uh, fact that the story of Gabby Petito is, of course, a disturbing story. It is one that has triggered and a lot of particularly women who have trauma of facing violence from men. Um, it is, you know, raised questions about that issue. But also, of course, it's a very common story, not just among you know, white women who are telegenic, like Gabby was, but among women of all different races. Um, do you feel that the media coverage of Gabby Petito has been terribly disproportionate, considering the many, many hundreds of and thousands of missing and murdered indigenous women the nation over? Uh, absolutely. You know, from the time that uh, Gabby Petito um, story broke in the news media and her um, was missing on September 11th and when her body was found in Wyoming eight days later the mass media coverage there was over like five different agencies working um, on her case and it was uh, national media attention uh, huge spotlight and I think from that time when she went missing to the time she was found in Wyoming, there has been since 2011 to, to, to current, there's been over 710 indigenous missing cases reported in that territory in Wyoming. And so it would be to say at the least that the inequities in media attention are um, are very disproportionate. <laughs> and that can bring us to so many different um, ways of looking at it. I know for those of us in indigenous communities all around Turtle Island from Canada into here, it, there has been quite a bit of, um, of uh, trauma that has been created behind this um, attention. And, and it's really important to say that we did not feel that we want to discount the media coverage that happened for um, Gabby Petito and her family who's grieving. Anytime we have a woman or a daughter go missing, it's, it's sad and it's horrific in, in the sense that women endure violence across the board. But what's problematic about it is that we don't necessarily want less media attention for a young white 20 year old girl, but that we are, we have been fighting for decades in, in, in communities and surviving families. And it's, there's been countless um, grassroots movements that have been going on for decades to amplify our voices to get um, be, to become visible into the crisis that's happening with the ongoing 
violence against Native women, the missing, the murdered Indigenous women, girls. Some have pointed out that when um, the cases of Indigenous women, or even for that matter, Black women, women of color in general, who are missing are raised in the media, often there tends to be a negative um, characterization by the media of their character, of their background. Um, there tends to be this heightened focus on you know, what they might have engaged in, any behavior they might have engaged in, as if to suggest that that their, uh, whatever they might have suffered was the result of reckless endangerment of themselves. And we don't see that when white women like Gabby Petito's cases are being covered in the media, right? They're often, um, you know, they're often portrayed as very innocent, right? Right. Yeah, so we do need to discuss in a very transparent and open conversation the violent language um, that is used in media, which is stigmatized to shine. So we're, we're, we're amplifying our voices to, to get the spotlight shined upon our, our stories that of our missing girls and women um, on, and all our relatives. And yet when the spotlight, spotlight does come upon us, it's, it's created in such a way that, you know, there is often references to drug, um, drug violence, I mean, drug use, sex work, gang violence, um, you know, and oftentimes there's uh, excuses for the perpetrator of the violence to maybe, um, you know, minimize their accountability you know into it so there's misclassifications there's so many issues so yes the the media also plays into um discriminatory factors in the way that they um set the angle of how the light is is portrayed because they are literally um trying to shape the narrative and and um, in a way that they they want to dismiss who we are and and the sad part is in that in that process um, it 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 perpetuates um, um, this image of us in such a bad way and um, it also oftentimes the content of media coverage centers on like reservation violence trying to make it appear that the only life that happens on reservations, it also um, discounts the fact that, um, you know, there's rural, um, there's like, that um, we're not just on reservations, but the urban population of natives is like 70% of, of um, natives. So there's a huge intent to discriminate and in it it all plays back into the logic logic of elimin, uh, elimination the intent goes back to settler colonialism the in, the intent is to um to um amplify so we're talking about like if we're going to get into respectful truth telling and um where we articulate um the investigative historical accounts. We need to talk about um, what's going on in the past and the ongoing expressions of genocide. 
that are found in the faces of our missing and our murdered women, girls, and relatives. Tiana, it's so interesting you just to picking up on what you were saying earlier about the fact that there, you know, is this outsized coverage of, of, of a case like Gabby Petito, and at some point you have to wonder how much is, is enough uh, a a news anchor from the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, Fox Station, KTVU, Frank Somerville, wanted to do a story about the fact that Gabby Petito's case was getting far too much coverage and, you know, eclipsing the missing and murdered indigenous women's stories. And he was suspended for even suggesting that his outlet um, maybe focus a little bit less on her case and he's been suspended indefinitely now. It's just really remarkable. This is a you know straight white guy uh, who's an, a news anchor, just for questioning the amount of media coverage that her case received has now been indefinitely suspended. So there's this huge pressure in our media, and I'm wondering, you know, that sort of uh, the, the the feeding frenzy from this young woman's case, this very tragic story of this young woman's case. Shouldn't we see that media coverage are also using her? She's just clickbait. Her case is just clickbait and a way for them to generate revenue, right? Well, we all know um, that the news media has um, a lot of that is based on ratings, right? Um, And this story has caught fire. And and, and, and a lot of it, again, has, has caught fire because it is intended to warp the mindset and also feed into the value of of the um of um upholding the um the value of this young white girl is so tragic i i wanted and it is tragic but um all loss of life is tragic so i don't want to get into um being dismissive that there is a loss there but i i want to talk about a trend that i have been witnessing since um doing this work and being committed to um, ongoing research the work of it the prayers and and what what i've observed i went to a human trafficking um seminar or conference here in and what i observed was i can see an encroachment so as, as missing, murdered Indigenous women's and relatives movement is gaining traction and momentum, and we're starting to break in because the demands are so high. We have Interior Secretary Deb Haaland on the inside putting pressure. So there's pressure, there's pressure, pressure from the searches that are happening with our sister Lisa Yellowbird. There's pressure in in, um, the data that Anita Lekesi's work has done. There's pressure in grassroots organizers that are bringing the people together. So our youth are bringing in pressure. And so there's also the connecting of the dots that if you make this invisible, this this missing and murdered indigenous women's um, account of of, of all of the murders that are happening. And because those murders tie into um, invested interests that that um, extractive industries have. And then we have to talk about the man camps. And then we have to talk about territorialism. And we have to talk about 
all of the trauma that's been created through like the residential boarding schools and how that's created intergenerational trauma for us and internalized oppression. And so these issues then expose, they expose the horrors of, of um, what goes on in connection to missing, murdered indigenous women. And so what I see is a trend in the media to take off and co-opt the work of missing, murdered indigenous women and relatives and make it popularized so that it's kind of the new hip thing that's emerged that gets a lot of media attention. But now what do they have to do? They have to whitewash it, right? It's kind of always what happens, right? Something something has happened, the work, the labor, the hard work, the blood work of the people have risen together in a beautiful way. And now we're, we're breaking through because we're demanding, we're demanding and we're calling for action and, and, and we're, we're demanding change. And well, with that, that voice has to be silenced and snuffed out. And it is through media is the way that, that renders us invisible by highly amplifying, magnifying this one case and whitewashing the whole movement. I don't know if you noticed on People Magazine as well, there was like maybe 10 different women from all over the country saying, these women are missing in the US, what happened to them? Well, there's eight of them, right? But that really, that on the front of that magazine should have been the stories of, you know, Casera Stops Pretty Places, Ashley Loring Heavy Runner, um, Selena Not Afraid, um, Savannah LaFontaine, Misty Upram, um, um, Khadijah Brighton. Like, where are these stories? Where are they? And and if, if you look at the disparities in Montana, I think from the time she went missing to the time she her body was found, uh, Pito, Petito, there were like, I can't remember exactly now, forgive me. There was like three different cases of bodies found in Montana. And and I'm and there was no nowhere in the media is anyone getting attention. So yes, this this disparity of media attention needs to be brought to the light in the same way that our residential um, children from the boarding schools, their graves are being unmasked because the truth has to come into the light. And it's the truth that will really um, will set the story straight and will will put us on the right path and get the narrative out there so that justice right. can be served. Well, right? Tayana, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Is there a website or anything that you'd like to give out where people can find out more about? We the are actually there? under construction. Okay. Construction way of the sacred mountain org. Um, the work that we do, um, prayerful actions, prayer runs, uh, and we also have the Red Teepee Healing Project, uh, and that is a vision that makes um, it very visible and very present. So I want to just also say one more thing before we close is for us, you know, missing, murdered Indigenous women and relatives, this is not just a social construct. This is not just a social um, movement. We are prayerful, ceremonial people. This is prayerful action, and we know that it is it this prayer that we're carrying for the missing, murdered relatives, for the children of the residential schools, for our relatives gone missing. And it's it's um, it's 
the way that we are coming together in solidarity to amplify these these voices that's going to um, trust in the creator to bring forward the truth and and create that spiritual unity that we need to have in order to move forward so together we carry this prayer for our missing relatives today together we are this prayer i want to thank you so much for joining us today unfortunately we're out of time really appreciate it tan and good luck to you thank you thank you I've been speaking with Teana Viscara. She's a descendant of Pirotiwa Pueblo Apache and a European ancestry, and she's the founder of Way of the Sacred Mountain. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sonali. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. There are many ways to make social change. Street activism and protests, political organizing, running for office, petitioning, boycotts, and more. Today, we'll turn to the author of a new book who has highlighted how principled lawyers are using the legal system as a tool for social change. Maria Armudian is a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland. She's the author of Kill the Messenger, the media's role in the fate of the world, and reporting from the danger zone. She now joins me to discuss her latest book called Lawyers Without Borders, Advancing International Rights Through Local Laws and Courts. Welcome to the program, Maria. It is great to be with you, Sonali. It's been too long. It has, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about this latest book that you've written, which has such a sweeping international view of justice, of the courts. I imagine that this was a complicated book to write because any legal system is complicated of any single jurisdiction. You're not just yes. covering a single country. You're covering many, many different countries, many jurisdictions here. In what part, yeah, mostly it focuses on the United States and on this group of lawyers who were civil rights lawyers and that were trying to get justice for survivors of torture and genocide and massacres um, through the United States courts and how they built a movement here in the United States to do that despite all the laws that normally would make this thing difficult, but how they creatively found ways to get them into the U.S. courts. And uh, the long arc of it is that then, yes, they did have to go abroad. But really, the focus was on how these ideas, how creative they were. Because what happens, I think, with all of us who have an international focus is we see all these horrific 
violations of human rights. And we feel so helpless and so despaired about not being able to do anything. And yet these lawyers were like, well, we've got these tools um, and we know that they've worked in these other scenarios. Let's just try this and see if we can creatively get it through the courts. And they started this movement. Now, sadly, the movement has been truncated. But let me just, uh, unless you have another question, I could just- No, go, go, go for okay. it. <laughs> so the, I think the main starting point is that back at this period of time, which was the late 70s, you had two movements that were really alive. One was the civil rights movement in the United States, and the other was the international human rights movement. So at this point in time, you know, groups like Amnesty International had sway. And in the United States, you know, groups like the NAACP and the ACLU and um, a lot of these various legal groups were advancing rights for people. One group would get some rights. Um, so for example, by uh, the end of the 1950s, after they had gotten segregation declared illegal and they started to get redress for African-Americans, your lawyer started to move this to other groups who had also been aggrieved, women, the accused, um, you know, uh, LGBT later on. And to various extents, they were winning um, redress rights. People were getting restitution for their rights being violated. And this was largely done in the courts. And then the other branches were sort of complementing them. You know, back uh, when Brown versus Board of Education happened in the 1950s, the uh, Kennedy administration then kicked in and started to help um, with all of their uh, administrative activities and Congress passed laws. So there was, it was a sort of interbranch thing with civil society moving, not exactly in tandem, but one following the other. What now, happened is there was this, a couple of lawyers who worked at CCR as volunteers. This is, this is the was, Center for Constitutional Rights. That's right. And one of them is a guy named Peter Weiss, who's in his 90s now. And I had the great pleasure of getting to interview him uh, for this book. But he was in both movements. He was involved in the civil rights movement. He was involved in the human rights movement. He was a child during the um, Holocaust and uh, himself was a refugee coming to the United States. So he deeply in his bones felt what these violations of rights meant on the international scale and the horrors of them. At the same time, he had been schooled on all these, you know, classic ideas about morality and justice. And uh, one of the ideas that had come through the international human rights movement was this idea of universal jurisdiction. And that meant that some crimes are so heinous that they should be prosecuted everywhere, anywhere, any court of law should be able to take them. And he thought, well, torture is among them. Genocide is among them. And so his idea was, all right, the civil rights movement is alive. They have expanded the law for all these uh, groups of aggrieved people. Why can't we expand that for people who have been tortured or have survived genocides or massacres? And so he met, this was in the 70s again, uh, a Paraguayan doctor whose son had been tortured to death in Paraguay by a military man a Paraguayan military man. And he thought, well, let's test this case. And he found an obscure statute called the Alien Tort Statute. 
um, that was passed in the first Congress. And um, it just simply said that aliens had access to the U.S. courts, federal courts had jurisdiction. And by if, aliens, of course, we mean resident, uh, rather we mean uh, um, non-U.S. citizens or people who are not foreigner, residents are foreign. or citizens of the United States. That's right. But they used the word alien mm -hmm. in, the, in the statute, Alien Tort Claims Act was what it was originally called. And it was in the first Judiciary Act. And essentially it just said, if a tort, a civil wrong, violated the laws of nations, then the courts had jurisdiction, federal courts. And he thought, well, that sounds like universal jurisdiction to me. And so he tried this case and he won. They, the guy happened to be in the United States. They served him. They sued him. They got a $10 million judgment, weren't able to collect. But, you know, just the moral victory um, was a big deal for the family. So, so that kept getting expanded. Okay. So so it sounds so as though it sounds as though the victims and the accused in many of these cases that you profile are not Americans. This is a a, a way to get international justice for things like torture, horrific crimes, but in the US court system, in as much as the US has any jurisdiction over this. Right. So the, the conservative courts have started whittling this down, mm. as you might guess, but it hasn't completely been able to eliminate it. Um, and that's because Congress at the time was inspired by Peter Weiss and the cases that the, that case and then the cases that followed. Um, and they passed something called the Torture Victim Protection Act, uh, which expanded that also for Americans who were violated abroad in, in similar egregious uh, ways. So there's actually a dedicated statute, statute which was intended to not just, um, uh, you know, serve for the uh, victims, but to uh, endorse what the original statute did and expand it. So that's so it's been impossible for the courts to completely eliminate it, but they have truncated as much as they could possibly truncate by, you know, in ways that you don't expect. If you're a true uh, student of the Supreme Court, you don't, a purist, should we say, you wouldn't expect them to do this to a Congress, but they've gotten a lot of power and they've been able to do this. Now, of course, the United States itself is often a perpetrator of horrific torture. Uh, we can think of Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo. Um, has have these same laws been used to hold uh, you know American perpetrators accountable for they victims tried. against non-Americans? They tried. Yeah, they tried. Uh, they tried using both the Alien Tort Statute. They tried using the Torture Victim Protection Act, and the courts essentially said. They dismissed the cases against the um, high-level officials in the United States based on things like national security and based on ideas such as state secrets. Um, but there were a couple of cases that did settle, and that was because as uh, bad as it is that the United States has turned to using increasingly these um, private contractors for military that has opened up an avenue to get some redress for some of the victims. So there were a couple of cases in which three that I can think of off the top of my head in which the survivors of these awful uh, violations have gotten some form of redress. One was against Blackwater 
One was against the private contractors who were involved in Abu Ghraib torture. And it wasn't all of them. It was one group of them who managed to sue in, a, in the state of Maryland. And the other was there were two psychologists who had designed the CIA's torture program. And there were two survivors and the family of one who died um, in, under those horrific conditions. And they managed to get redress from those two psychologists who designed that enhanced interrogation program, which we all know is really just a euphemism. So when we um, look at the international arena, there was a time when there was uh, optimism about uh, international crimes being prosecuted. Um, you know, the United Nations is one avenue, but then there's the International Criminal Court, which I know that the U.S. has sort of stymied both these international bodies. Um, how does the ICC play into this? Because the ICC is uh, in in the process in some cases of pursuing um justice for victims of torture yeah so each of these bodies and there's more than just the icc there's the inter-american commission for human rights there are uh there are all kinds of courts that get set up as ad hoc tribunals so there are multiple places where survivors can go and try to get justice and try to hold perpetrators accountable now, I had focused primarily on the civil litigation aspect, in part because this was a way that the survivors became plaintiffs, so they were no longer victims per se, that they sued their perpetrator and that they faced them off in court in this way. But a lot of them are also engaging multiple institutions at one time. A lot of these are political. They all have their own sets of laws and rules are too complicated to kind of get into here. But in some situations where they weren't able to get any kind of redress from US courts, there were some, uh, for example, from uh, the 9-11 war, uh, war on terror that you mentioned that did go to the inter-American court. And there's a, um, in one case, uh, a man who was renditioned, who was Canadian, an engineer, just a very nice guy um, and tortured in Syria, he got his, um, redress out of Canada, $10 million. He put it towards helping other torture victims. Wow. But the United States never did redress him. So it's, it is complicated. But I think the point of the book is, first of all, these are ideas that are timeless. And um, it's sort of a creative amalgamation of time and statutes and persuasion and advocacy in a really difficult situation. So it takes a lot of grit, you know, sheer grit to pursue these. There's not a lot of money in this. for the I was lawyers. just going to ask you, I mean, it sounds like it takes a lot of resources. And often, uh, as you point out in your book, the, um, uh, the, the, the accused are big corporations or can be big corporations, such as Royal yeah, Dutch Shell. That's the hardest. This is the hardest because the ICC doesn't take on corporations uh, at this point uh, or hasn't. And um, the US Supreme Court has essentially protected corporations from the alien tort statute. They've used an idea called extraterritoriality saying that uh, the violation has to touch and concern the United States, which wasn't in the original statute, uh, but they have managed to whittle it down in that way. And that was um, first decided in a case um, by brought by an Ogani 
an indigenous Ogani woman of Nigeria against Royal Dutch Petroleum, which had you know, been working with Nigeria. Her husband was hung to death. There were nine, uh, eight others in addition to him. And the community was just terrorized from all of the human rights violations that had occurred there as a result of this uh, oil exploration and um, all of the other awful things that were happening. But the court decided in her case of this idea of extraterritoriality, it had a touch and concern in the United States. They just affirmed that in a case brought by um, children who were essentially slaves against, they had sued Nestle because they had been forced into labor. They, uh, to As make children, public. so child labor. Yeah. yeah. And the court again said it has to touch and concern the United States. And just because they made decisions in the United States doesn't necessarily make it strong enough for the kids to bring the lawsuit. So this is, these are decisions made by the Supreme Court, which I would argue uh, go against um, what the Congress has wanted. So against, um, you know, legislative intent. So it is, um, it is a court moving in a direction that maybe was not originally the plan. Maria, let's talk about the lawyers themselves, because yeah. none of this would be possible without, as you pointed out earlier, the grit, the determination of individuals pursuing these you know, labyrinthine um, avenues for justice. Uh, and you know, there's many different ways to pursue justice. There's, there's boycotts and petitions and street protests. Uh, this is one of many, many different ways. But it's a, yep. it's a, it's a. I imagine a sort of backbreakingly difficult way, but can have some very uh, tangible success. And imagine it takes uh, some sheer dedication on the part of individuals. Tell me about some of these lawyers. You mentioned one earlier from CCR, but there's quite a, quite a few people, a small army of of lawyers that takes on such cases. Pieces, right? Yeah, I was really inspired by them. Look, the whole thing, this whole book sort of dawned on me uh, while I was doing a radio program at Pacifica. And there was a case, uh, I interviewed the lawyer for a particular case. You've had him on your program, Dan Stormer. Mm, yeah. And Dan had sued the oil company Unical on behalf of these indigenous Burmese people who had been also tortured, enslaved, killed. Uh, to build a pipeline in Burma at the time. Um, and they actually settled out of court for about $30 million. And that money has gone on to support all kinds of programs in Burma for the community. Um, the cases often take decades. So the lawyers have to have ways to support themselves. A lot of times they double as something else. Um, in Dan's case, you know, he's a civil rights lawyer. So he, um, takes on all these other cases that do have some money coming in so that he can take a, a, a case that is gonna take forever and then may or may not come to fruition and may cost him. He was involved along with CCR um, and Earthrights, which is one of the most important organizations, Earthrights International, which started this movement um, to bring the corporations to some accountability in these cases. Um, but most, it's, a lot of them are nonprofits. A lot of them double as something else. Some of them are law professors. Maria, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Good luck to you with your book. Can't wait Great to see being. what you work on next. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Sonali. Great Good. being with you. Thank you.
I've been speaking with Maria Armudian, senior lecturer at the University of Auckland, author of numerous books, including Kill the Messenger, The Media's Role in the Fate of the World, and Reporting from the Danger Zone. We've been discussing her latest book, Lawyers Without Borders, Advancing International Rights Through Local Laws and Courts. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com. By becoming a subscriber, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatkar. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy Award-winning band, Gets Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. Camera activist Betty Lee has captured 30 years of street protests in Portland from the 1989 demonstration condemning the racist murder of Mullah Gay Sirah to the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020. The Old Mole Variety Hour is pleased to offer a large print of your choice of Betty's most iconic photos to 10 lucky donors during KBOO's fall membership drive. Winners will be selected by lottery and everyone who donates will be eligible. For more details and to see Betty's photos,